Okay, Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. We are moving along into two verses, really two and a half verses tonight. Uh, that sounds funny, maybe. But um, verse 8, 9, and part of verse 15 is what we're going to look at. And I'm going to bring it back to its context and work through it. Because this is, verse 8 especially, is a very familiar verse to us. We've used it a lot in different ways. We've been used, you could insert it in conversations pretty easily. But uh, it says in verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then verse 15, just jump across the page if that's easy enough. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So you can obviously see what kind of context we're going to work with here tonight. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, help us again as we uh, work through a passage like this to see uh, what you are showing to us that our eyes might be open and our hearts engaged and we're willing to take it in and understand it and use it for your honor and glory. So guide us through our time here tonight. and Thank you, Lord, so much for it. Thank you for using Peter to record these words that we might read them. And uh, it's been many years since they were first written. But the impact is still strong today and needed. And so help us to work through this and understand it better. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the issue in these verses, believe it or not, is judgment. That's the context we're dealing with. It goes all the way back to verse number 3, where Peter says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, they are not looking for the rapture. All right? That's not their hope. They're not sitting there, when's the rapture? That's our question. That's not the mocker's question. Our question is, when's the Lord coming? We'd love that. But they're mocking the promise of Scripture that the Lord said, I'm coming, and I'm coming to judge. We saw that. Just because we're in Jude a lot, I just have to quote it to you. But we've, we've been hearing of that judgment all the way back uh, from the days of Enoch. And I'll remind you of this. Jude said this in verse 14 uh, in the book of Jude. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, that's a long time ago, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all the ungodly, and all their ungodly deeds, and so on and so forth. The, the question is, judgment. And their mocking is, well, is he really? Is he actually going to come and judge us? Is, is there even a judgment at all? Should we have any concern about the judgment? In the verses that we're going to look at here, it's got a kind of a twofold side to it. And one side is, sinful men are judging God by what they view him as and his characteristics. And on the other side, God is patient to judge men. So we're going to see both sides of that in this little passage as we're dealing with it. There, there's just the fact that 
we have before us. And that is, in Scripture, God will judge, and God hasn't done it yet. Alright? So, that's the issue, the opportunity set before us to understand, and how man must respond to that. That God is a judge, and God will judge. There are some who don't believe that. There are people in our day and age that don't believe that. That, that there is a judgment yet to come, that God is serious about sin, that God will condemn people to the lake of fire forever and ever. Scripture teaches that, and there are some who do not believe that. I met one just the other day, quite honestly. A Bible conference I was in, we had a man sitting there who said there is no hell. He believed that everybody's going to be redeemed someday. Universal salvation doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about hell. And we're like, uh, excuse us. <laughs> you know, you're in a room full of pastors and you say that. It's not going to be quiet in that room. Suddenly we say, but doesn't scripture say, and we start reading off verses. And the answer to that was, well, the New Testament is not really authoritative anyway. What do you call that? So somebody who says, even though God says it will happen, they said it won't. That's that's false teaching. That's what that is. And and I know it's here. It's right here in, in Enid, Oklahoma. It's that close. And so when I read this and I say mockers will come mocking, and they're mocking the promise that God has made that he will judge. And it's like, wow. That's not, that's not science fiction. That's reality today. That's happening today. So sinful men have this appearance that they know more than God does. They know more. Let me take you to a passage. Just put your bookmark here for a minute. You go all the way back to a book called Jonah. You know where that's at? Minor Prophets, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. You've got to go past Daniel and Ezekiel. And then you start diving into minor prophet territory. And the book of Jonah is in there. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. You can find Obadiah. Jonah, right after Obadiah. Jonah chapter 3. You know the story. We, when we talk about Jonah, it's primarily about a big fish, right? He, he was supposed to go. He didn't want to go. He went the wrong way. He got swallowed by a fish. Uh, that whole thing, I mean, that intrigues us. We like to talk about that. But in chapter 3, he actually went. He got a second chance. There's the Lord's mercy. Uh, that he just wasn't fish bait, and then God said, our son, somebody else. Uh, but God gave him a chance, and he went the second time. The chapter 3 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. God didn't change his plans. The first visit, he told Jonah what to do. Jonah said, I'm not going. Second time he came, he didn't change his plans. He said, same message, Jonah. Same thing, this is what I want you to say. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And Jonah began to go through the city, just one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's not much of a message. 
That's a handful of words, and that's not much. I mean, he's not calling for application. He's not talking for for them to make a response. He's not saying anything. I think he might have been even enjoyed the message. Walking around saying it this way. This I picture I picture something in this. Remember the guys that used to carry those big old signs around that said things like doomsday or the the earth is ending or something. You know, all those funny signs we used to see people. I almost pictured Jonah like that, walking through town with this sign. Just, 40 days and it's over. You guys are done. And that's it. That's his message. The people of Nineveh believed in God. Now, I'm not going to talk Old Testament, New Testament, salvation stuff. They heard the message. They believed it was coming. That's how simple that was. They believed that God had said this, and they believed they were in trouble. And they immediately called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe. Notice it wasn't the king pushing this. It started from the people and worked its way to the king. And he laid aside his robe from him, and he covered himself with sackcloth. He sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man, beast, Heard or flock, taste a thing, do not let them eat or drink water. You know what? That's a little challenging. How are you going to keep your cow out of the field? <laughs> Don't let him eat. All right? That's part of what he said. And on top of that, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. If you had a herd of a thousand cows, you're in trouble. You're out there covering them all up with burlap and whatever else. And I, I just kind of laugh a little bit at it because it's not usually in our flannel graph. I just would love to see that scene. But, uh, but watch this. Verse 8. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. God might spare us if we respond right now. Did God spare them? Yes. For a hundred years. Read the book of Nahum. And then that day was over. And God did punish Assyria. But nevertheless, here in Jonah chapter 3, perhaps God will spare us if we respond now. The message of judgment goes out. And it's meant to get mankind to respond. If you knew trouble was coming, you should do something about that. That's the contrast to our mockers we're studying here tonight. Because they look at the, the judgment coming and they say, Oh, it's not true. No, it's not true. They dismiss it instead of respond to it. And so, with that in mind, back here in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, watch what the mockers are doing. I'm just going to call them sinful men, because they are. Uh, and they are judging God. They are judging God. Verse 3 and 4, we've already seen how they're mocking. They're mocking His promise. They're mocking the fact that uh, ever since the fathers fell asleep, verse 4 says, uh, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They forgot a few points in history in there. Like, God did judge before. <laughs> like, Noah's in the ark, Sodom and Gomorrah. Examples like that, God has shown himself. But they said, no, it's never happened. It's not really true. It's just a story, no doubt. Verse number 7, 
They intentionally ignore God's word. Because verse 7 says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And they're saying, no, it's not true. By God's word, he created the world. By God's word, he judged in the days of Noah. By his word, he judged in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. By his word, he declared there's a judgment coming upon sinful men. And there, by his word, this earth right now is being preserved for judgment. And they said, his word does not have merit. It means nothing. That's what they consider his word. Not only they're ignorant of God's word, but they're intentionally ignorant of God's word. Because as Jude, or Peter keeps on writing, he says, but don't let this one fact escape your notice, verse 8. He's talking to believers there. But these folks not only have mocked God's word, they really mock his character. They mock his character. As you see in verse number 9, let's start backwards a little bit here. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. The character of our God, oh, he's delayed. He's tardy. Remember that old word in school? You're tardy. I said, oh, nobody ever liked that word. Uh, you're tardy. You're, we think, we esteem, we count, we add it up that you, Lord, do not know what you're doing. Why does anyone delay? Sometimes they're buying time because they're trying to figure out the answer and they don't really know it. So they will put in a delay tactic. You've seen that before many times in politics. <laughs> they say, let's just we'll think about that. We'll get to that. We'll walk on that, you know, eventually. But right now, there's a delay process going on. And the mockers stand back, as it says, as some count slowness. Some are counting the Lord's slowness as if he's dull, as if he's tearing, as if he's, he's delaying on purpose, as if he can't, he can't prepare for this the right way. Peter, or Timothy, received that note from Paul one day in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's right around verse, well, it's right at verse 15, that Paul says, well, I'm coming, but if I tarry, this is what I want you to do. And he gave him a whole list of things to be doing in the church. Because you and I, no, we could set our plans, but there might be a delay. There might be something that slows us down. And when I lived in Indiana, you could almost count on the train. Because we didn't have the bridges over and the bridges under and everything else. It was just a train on the track. And you had to sit and wait for the train to clear and things of that nature. You don't plan for that. You don't anticipate those kind of things. But here this is happening. And the reality is that the Lord has not judged yet. He's promised, but he's still waiting. And that to me is incredible. That he's able to wait and wait and wait. And they look at that and they say, well, this is why. Because he's not capable of judging. He's not powerful enough to judge. He's, he's, he's delaying this because he just cannot do it. He doesn't have it planned out right. He doesn't have the power to do it. And that's what their mocking is in the verse number four anyway. Where is the promise of his coming? This is like the child that really got in trouble and the promise was, I'm going to spank you. That's why we used to do it anyway. And they say, ah, I don't believe it. That's the idea. 
They're mocking him. They they said this is this lateness. Whose timing are they working with? Their own. It's based on their opinion of when is the right time to judge. When is this going to happen? And God hasn't done it yet. Matter of fact, it's been a long time since this promise. If you add what Enoch said to the chronology figure, you're going way back to about 3000 B.C. Add it to now, you've got about 5,000 years since God made the promise and it's still not fulfilled. They said, well, what's wrong with God's clock? Maybe he forgot to set the alarm. Maybe he's just not capable of bringing this about. Maybe, you know, they're mocking, they're mocking according to their own calendar. You see how they're viewing God? They're esteeming God from their own opinion. From their own opinion. This is what I think God should do. This is how I think God should act. This is our opinion of God. This is our opinion of His Word. He must have changed His plans. He must have forgotten. Uh, and all the while they're mocking the very thing that they should dread. Because He's coming to judge them. That's the promise of His coming. He's coming to judge them. And it's almost like they raise their fist to heaven and dare Him. Oh, sure. I don't think it's going to happen. There was there was a movement, I've talked about this before, but it was really heavy uh, during the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Um, I encountered it up front, personally, in this theory or this belief or this system that they called open theism. And I remember the day that a man came to my office, and I had just started to understand it. It was a new thing kind of circulating. And what it is, open theism, is the idea that God does not know the future. God, God is just as surprised as you are about what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't like that because I'm having eye surgery. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not hoping that he, he's like that. All right? But this is their theory was, that all those omnis we have in theology, omnipresent, no, that's not true. Omniscient, no, that's not true. Uh, omnipotent, no, that's not true. They hate the word omni, so they're stripping it out of their theology. And they say, well, he's powerful, but not all powerful. He, he's present, but he's not all present. Personally, I hate that idea. Because I want a God who's with me all the time that's completely powerful. That's me. Maybe that's you too. But that's what the God of Scripture is. And they're denying that. And they were teaching that. And a guy came to my office. Literally, this happened. He came in and he had a manila folder with him of all their little papers that they teach and everything else. And he sat down and he said, just want to talk to you, Pastor. I don't, never knew him before, except that he came one Sunday night or something the week or so before. And he came in and he says, I just want to talk to you about this thing. Um, that we're, we're trying to get the word out to all the churches about these things because we think that there's a mistake being taught in the pulpit on God's omniscience. And of course, that suddenly gets my little bells ringing. And I say, okay, what do you got to say? And he starts in on this idea that God can't possibly know the future. All right? And he's giving me the whole story about that like a salesman. He's going on and on and on. And as he's going through it, I just, leaping through my Bible, I take him to the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, there's a prophecy 
And the prophecy has to do with when, after the 70-year captivity, God is going to have Israel told by decree to go back to their land and build the temple. All right? After 70 years. And when Isaiah recorded that, and that was about 600 B.C., and this was about 150 years later that it came to fulfillment, Isaiah actually named the man who was going to do that, Cyrus, my servant. He put it in print 150 years before. The man wasn't even born yet. And yet it's recorded by name, Cyrus. And so I brought that up to him. That's all I said. I said, then how did God know that this man named Cyrus, by name, was going to do this act? And he's like, uh, I'm going to go and study that. I said, good idea. Because you can do that with a lot of passages. But the scripture is just full of the fact that God knows the future. He knows it. He knows it inside out. Because, honestly, he's already written it. I know that's big. But history is just God's record. And things in the future, prophecy, is history yet to be happening. It hasn't happened yet, but it will according to God's word. Just like he said, don't be surprised when you stand at the end of time and look back and say, wow, he did do all that. Because that's the nature of his word. Well, people, mockers, will want you to think he doesn't know, he's not powerful enough, he's not capable enough, he's not even here, so they dismiss him as a impotent God. That's what it comes down to. They mock his character as well as his word. And this is what you're seeing in the early part of this concept that I'm setting before you, is the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. Verse number 9. That's what the mockers are doing, because they don't really believe that God is able to judge. They're judging God, blasting his character. So let's go to the other side of the coin, and the fact is that God is patient. (laughs) You know what? We say this, and it's just in jest a little bit, but the idea is, you know, if I had a chance to be God for a day, what would you do with a mocker? I mean, wouldn't you want to respond right away and say, squash him like an ugly bug on the sidewalk? That would be our response. Like, get rid of him. Incredibly, God's patience is still in the verse. Even when they're mocking him, God is patient. That blows me away. That, that's just an incredible thing. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some kind of slowness, but is patient toward you and not wishing, not willing that any will perish, but that all would come to repentance. That little word, but, is patient toward you, is a very strong word. I love that word. It's, that, it's just as beautiful as that one in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 4. When you're going through it and it's talking about our sin and we're dead in our trespasses and sins and we're walking according to the course of the world and we're just all participating in that, children of wrath and all that. But God, who is rich in mercy, I just love the contrast in that. And I said, oh, that makes me feel good. And here you're reading about them mocking, 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 mocking. And it says, but he is patient. 
He is patient. There's a present tense verb going on here, which is really fun. He is continually patient. How long does patience hold out? It does come to an end, by the way. That's true. It will come to an end. But at this point, at this time, he is exercising a patience that just keeps going and going. And, and it really boggles the mind to understand why. But he does. He keeps his patience intact here. The word is macrothumia. We use the word micro all the time. Something small, something fast, something... You know, microwave, those kind of ideas. We, we use that word. Macro is the opposite. It means bigger. Big, big, big. And thumia is heat, or what we use for wrath. Right? When somebody gets really angry and they turn red and smoke comes out their ears. Cartoons did it that way. Hope you never do. But if you're, if you're just, you know, furious as can be, long on wrath. That's the word for patience. God has has wrath. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that he holds it and holds it and holds it. There's a couple of cool verses goes with this. Um, go back to Revelation. You're not that far away. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, right around uh, verse 18. The message to Thyatira. The church in Thyatira. Look at the words that are here. This is rather interesting. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Starting off, this is a nice sounding church. Sounds like it, they're pretty good. They're doing well. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, anytime you hear Jezebel, do you think of something cute and innocent? And, no, <laughs> that's not in the list, is it? It's not. I, nobody that I know of is naming their baby Jezebel. Abby and Daniel last week, we had a little surprise at first with the name. Because when I saw the word Cessna next to that baby, I said, what? Um, because he always said he was going to name his kids after airplanes. And I thought, when when we saw the first picture, and there's a sign right next to the baby, and it said Cessna Schuyler. And I said, Daniel got his way. How did that happen? And I thought Abby was unconscious. It must have been that he signed a birth certificate without her knowledge. But... Then we spent a half hour trying to wrap our brains around it, thinking, well, we're going to have to get used to this, so let's start loving that name. And then he came back later and said, it's really Phoebe Katharina. Katharina. And I said, oh, that's better. But if he had named it Jezebel, you know what? We would have jumped up there. We would have called him right away and said, no, no, no. You're going to change that. You know, who wants to name their child Jezebel? When you read this name Jezebel here, Look at the nature. It, it kind of gets you bristled up a little bit when you read it. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants away, astray. They commit acts of immorality. They eat things sacrificed to idols. That's one big yuck. And you tolerate that. 
Look at verse 29, or 21. Most people don't read this in the context. I gave her time to repent. Really? With all these actions? Look at God's patience. I gave her time. I gave her time. It's like, wow, Lord, we wouldn't have. God did. Anyway, she didn't want to repent. That's the rest of the story. But in Romans, Romans chapter 2, verse number 4. Here's a great little verse. This is the contrast verse. He's talking to the Romans who are, who are having a little issue with the nature of God's judgment, by the way. And it's verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. There are some who get a little cocky about sin. Apparently, Paul had to deal with that with some of the Romans who thought, oh, shouldn't we sin so that grace could abound and all these other things? And he's walking through. The price of sin is big. It's painful. It's terrible. The wages of sin is death. He goes through those kinds of important, heavy-duty topics. Like all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We know that's heavy in the book. That's the first five chapters, almost. But here, somebody was taking it lightly that God was kind. They didn't give much merit to the fact that He was tolerant or that He was patient with them. But God didn't change His character because of man's opinion. He says, I'm going to lead you to repentance. And that's the nature of his patience. And it's very interesting. They're mocking his character for a delay. And God is showing in that delay his character of patience. I am patient towards you. I'm patient towards you. I'm not wishing, as the rest of verse number 9 says here in Second Peter 3, I'm not wishing. I'm not willing. I don't intend. Uh, This is his attitude toward them. There's different kinds of wills, by the way. There's a will that is a concrete will. This is the will of God. This is God's actions. Da-da-da-da-da. It's a pretty strong word. That's fellow. This is another word, and it's the idea of his attitude. God is wishing. He's willing. He's not willing. Let's put the not in front of it. He's not willing that any should perish. That's That's in his heart of hearts. He doesn't want his creation to be destroyed. Will he destroy it? Yes. Does he want to? No. That's not why he created Adam and Eve in the first place. He created them to have fellowship with him. But instead, they sinned. And God said, the soul that eats of that fruit, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is true to his character. And he's going to keep that. But I will show you how much he's willing that you should come to repentance. He sent his son to die for that. I think that's a pretty good sign that God really does want mankind saved. And he's not looking for how many different ways can I smash this guy. That's his, his love in action, his patience toward us. It's, it's his attitude in all this. We even use the word for bias. That's the way he thinks. That's the way he thinks. He's not willing for anyone. Now take that word anyone and put it back in the context and who does that include? The mockers. Really? Really. 
That's incredible to me. It blows me away. He's not wishing that anyone, including false teachers, including the scoffers, including the mockers, to be destroyed. He's used that word destroyed before, by the way, in chapter 2, when he talked about the earth being destroyed by water. And the fact in, also here in chapter 3, that the earth will be destroyed in these ways. And verse number 11 uses the word again, and on and on. God says, I will destroy the wicked, but I don't want them to be there now. I'm patient. I'm patient. That's a really strong thing to say. And, and he's wanting... Literally, he wants people, rather than perish, to repent. And you say, okay, how's that work with salvation? Is that Repentance is, is not regret. Right? That's not the same word. Is I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> That's a regret. Uh, repentance is not remorse. Where you say, well, you know, I, I'm sorry I did that, and I just feel like terrible. I, it's despair. There's no hope in that. That's remorse. But repentance is always based on what you already know. That's the nature of repent. It's based on what you already know. When God used it in the Old Testament, the Israelites knew what the law was, and he called them to repent because they were breaking the law and go back to it. In the New Testament, it's only used of Christians... Repent, 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 so that they go back to what they know, what they're supposed to know. That's what we're called to do. That's why Christians are told to repent. When he's talking to a false teacher here, they're mocking the very word of God. And he says, I want them to repent, go back to the word and start again. He wants them to repent and go back to what they should already know. They must know something because they're mocking it. They must have seen it before. They must have read it before. And so he's calling them back to it. Back to that message. Back to that word. Thomas Jefferson wrote this. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That was 200 years ago. I think that's still true. God's justice is true. And what they need to do is go back to that point and say, yes, it's true. God's promise is true. And that will lead a man to say, what's my answer? Where do I go from there? And then they see the patience of God. And they start to examine, what is that all about? And how did he deal with my sin? And then they see a cross. And then they see a Savior. And then they see their need to believe. See, repentance is driving them back to the Word. And the Word, attached with the faith... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He says, I want them to repent. I want them to go back to it. Understand what they're mocking is true. So this is what he calls them. And the very fact that God is patient, it blows me away. Why would he be so patient with them? They don't deserve it, do they? We don't either. Let me show you something. Ready for this? As we're talking about this, and we're easily standing here reading Peter and putting it on this mocker and looking at it from that thing. Look at verse number 8 very carefully. But do not let this one fact escape. What's the next word you got? Your notice. Who's he writing to? Believers. 
This isn't a passage. Write it down and take it to the mocker. Hand it to the mocker. That's not the, this was, the book wasn't written to the mocker. This was written to the church. This was written to the believer. And here's what's interesting in this. Just like Jonah had a problem with God's mercy. The rest of the story, you know what it is. He was mad that God had spared them. That's not right. I want to squash them. Nope, God was merciful. Jonah didn't like that. We read of these mockers, and we read of the patience of the Lord, and that this message was written to us, not to them. What is the issue here? God is merciful, right? Guess where we have a problem? In dispensing mercy. We have a problem with that. I, I knew a man, and I talked to him for many, many months about the fact that there was a forgiveness issue. I mean, a big one that we were trying to solve, and it was just between a couple of people, but it worked into the church. It was one side and another side on this forgiveness issue, and I'll tell you what that's about in just a minute. But he talked all the time in church about God's mercy toward him, how wonderful God is merciful, how great God is merciful. I love God's mercy, on and on. He would testify to that constantly. And I said, in this conflict, which he was a big part of it, I stopped him and I said, now wait a minute. You love it when God backs up the truck and dumps a whole load of mercy on you, but you dispense it with a teaspoon. Is that the way it's supposed to be? We love God's mercy toward us, but God's mercy toward the mocker? God's mercy toward the, the one who stands with his fist toward the heavens? God's mercy toward the ungodly? If God could spare us, can't he spare them too? Yeah. Didn't Jesus die for both of us? God gives love. God gives love. Guess what we have a trouble with? I say we. Just so you know, I'm pointing my finger this way too. We tend to love those that we deem worthy of love. Who did God love? He loved the sinner. That verse in Romans 5 eight still floors me. I love that verse. That's my favorite verse, by the way. In the fact that God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love. And yet we dispense that so guardedly. We, we only give it to those who are worthy. God forgives. Have you ever measured God's forgiveness? How does he how does he picture sin being dealt with? As far as the east is from the west, out into the deepest part of the ocean, all these phrases to let us know it's gone. That's amazing. It's just wow, what a picture of forgiveness. I told you that argument in our in the church there between these two different parties because two different people were having an argument over a motorcycle. And it was splitting a church. And it's like, what is the deal with all this? But one had offended the other, and the other says, I'm not going to forgive until he asks for it. He set up a condition for forgiveness. And when I walked into that church, they had this, this feud had been going on for years. And I was asked to come and pastor the church. And guess what I got for months? This Everybody coming to me and saying, what what about this forgiveness thing? Which side are you on? You know? And, and so I said, how did Christ forgive you? 
That was my answer. When did Christ forgive you? Think about that. You go into the book of Colossians, and you start reading about the crucifixion of Christ and how that laid the foundation for our forgiveness. And I said, and you weren't even born yet, and you still hadn't done anything, and God had already determined through Jesus Christ there was a path for forgiveness. And what's wrong with the world that walks around and says, but I'll forgive you only if you do A, B, or C. Conditional forgiveness. Aren't you glad God didn't set it up that way, your way? That he says, I'll forgive you if you go to church for 16 years first. If you do da-da-da-da-da. All these things. He says, just believe me. Trust me. Receive Christ. You're forgiven. Wow. That's just astounding to me. But we tend to forgive when it's in our best interest to forgive. God forgives out of his nature and out of his love, out of his patience, out of his goodness. What's the whole point? Don't let this escape our notice. Look at verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Don't let this patience of God escape your notice. Remember, when it comes to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like one day. We act as if the book's been written on everybody today. The last chapter is not done yet. Isn't that good to know? Sometimes we we judge a person. We deal with them right today because we say, well, that's their problem and that's the way it is. But let's go back to the character of God. One day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. What does that mean and what is that in the middle of this passage for? It sounds like a mathematical equation. Ever try to figure it out? What's a thousand years to God? What's that? There's a contrast really going on here between God's eternity and man's brevity. If you want, Psalm 90 will give you the full picture. We don't have time for it tonight, but Psalm 90 is loaded with that. Setting it side by side. Here's great God we've got, and it talks about His wonderful names, and it talks about His eternal nature. Eternal nature. And here on the other side, you got man. He's sinful, and he's short-lived, like 70 years or maybe 80. And it goes through the whole passage, and it shows a puny little man and a strong eternal God. It's quite a contrast in that psalm, all the way through. But that's where this verse comes from. The thousand years is one day, one day is a thousand years. That's where, that's where Peter pulls that up. And he says, yes, that's the nature of our God. That's what he's like. Psalm 90 verse 4, that's what it goes back to. And here's the simple picture. What's the difference between one day and a thousand years? Well, if you measure man according to the Lord's existence, Methuselah didn't even live a full day. 969 sounds like an old man. In light of setting him next to eternity, that's nothing. That's nothing. We are dependent on time, aren't we? Don't you hate that clock in the morning? Beep, beep, beep. Then get up. We got a cat that goes beep, beep, beep. Well, not exactly, but 5.30. I could. I tell uh, Pamela, I said, we're not setting the alarm. The cat will wake us up at 5.30. All right. And she's right on the button. She knows it's 5.30. I don't know how. She must read the clock. But she comes out and she says, get up, get up, get up. And that's the way she is every single morning. 
We work by a clock. We need the light of day. Working by night is tough. Our bodies need sleep. We know all those things. Uh, matter of fact, from days to years to years to years, our bodies don't get stronger. They get weaker. I don't like that any more than you do. But that's reality. Time moves on. Time moves on. Someday we'll leave this earth. Time just marches on. Somebody else will live in your house. Somebody else might drive your car. Somebody else... You don't like that, do you? Solomon wrestled with that in Ecclesiastes. He says, boy, this is vanity. You know, trying to measure life and what's, what's important about life. But when it comes down to it, the Lord is not governed by time. He governs it. Matter of fact, He created it, if you really want the big picture. Time is His servant. He is not a servant to time. God is not, is not smaller than time. You see, if that was true, then time would be God. But God is greater than all this. And the simple thing is, you're trying to measure the, the patience of God. How long has He waited? Maybe 6,000 years. Maybe 5,000 years. Maybe 4,000 years. We start to measure it according to man's time, not according to God's character. He's not measured by time. We want changes now. We want this changed here. We want that changed here. We want this person to change. We want them to correct them. We want all those things. And we set it by our time. But here, God says, now, the truth is bothering you, obviously. Because he says, I want you to notice this. I'm not slow about my promise. I understand your problem with time. I don't have a problem with time. I'm patient. And God can afford to be patient this way. He's not just patient toward the unrighteous. Guess what? He's patient toward us too. Because we develop all these things. Is how, how little patience we have toward the unsaved. And God is so patient toward them. He's allowed this day, today, to go through this far. Still, He's patient toward all the lost that are on this planet. And if He gives us a tomorrow, guess what? God is patient still. And if he gives us another full week, guess what? God is patient still. Isn't that incredible to think through? He's not willing that any should perish. This is an opportunity for us to live and realize the character of our God. Exercising patience. Exercising patience. So that we, we, might see that and understand that. And maybe that might lead us to share that. Why else would he tell the church this message? Then we have the opportunity. He's delaying, he's delaying, he's delaying so that we might get busy. Look at verse 15. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. What are we doing with it? God's given us another day on the calendar. What are we doing with it? We're supposed to regard it Regard it. Verse 15 starts with a command. That's not an optional thing. He says, commanding us. It's a present imperative. That means keep it in your head all the time. Keep on thinking every single day. Regard this as important every single day. God is patient still. Let's take advantage of that because it pertains to salvation. He's not, he's not delaying because he's impotent. He's not delaying because he's ignorant. He's not delaying because he, he's changed his plans. He's delaying to give us time. Boy, did that come back on us, didn't it? 
It's like throwing a boomerang. There it is. It's, it's written to us to understand the patience of our God. Here's what Spurgeon said. I'll close with this. Spurgeon said, While I have prayed, come quickly. I have often felt inclined to contradict myself and cry, Yet tarry for a little while, good Lord. Let mercy's day be lengthened. Let the heathen yet receive the Savior. See, we may desire the Lord to come again, and we do look forward to it, but we ought to have the sympathy, the compassion, the patience of our God, because we're still on this planet, aren't we? And we need to be like Him. And we need to look at those, even the mockers, folks, even the mockers, as those who need to know the Lord. So I set that before you. I, I, I let that penetrate my heart and let it penetrate yours because we're supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And maybe we know a little bit more about what He's up to now. So as we grow, let, let that challenge us and change our behavior, change our hearts, and then get us busy. Get us busy. Heavenly Father, help us with this. This is a, a good passage for us to walk through, to think through. It's not easy, but it's good. And I thank you, Lord, for giving it to us. Put your clock in our heart. The clock that speaks of now is the time, today is the day of salvation, that we might see the urgency of getting that message out. We don't know tomorrow. You do. We walk by faith. And as that is true, Lord, we leave the timing to you, but you have left the message with us. We carry it about in earthen treasures, our little, little vessels inside of us. They're like little jars. We carry the message, the great message of the glory of God and the salvation offered through Jesus Christ. May we not just put it on a shelf. May we not hoard it to ourselves. May we understand mercy and love and forgiveness, and take that message to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Even the mockers do. And I pray, Lord, you work in our own hearts. May we not let this escape our notice. Thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen.